Thank you, Joby. Good morning, friends. My name is Ray, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi. It's good to be here. Um, I'm a member of the Waldorf group down in Waldorf, Maryland, and I like my group. Uh, hope you like yours. Uh, first off, I want to congratulate the committee on the fine selection of speakers. Uh, it's faster than one for this morning. Um, I had what I now know can be my last drink of alcohol, December the 14th, 1966. And I am certainly grateful for that. Uh, I could never have done it without you. And I still can. And that's primarily uh, the reason that I'm here. Um, I believe that these meetings are designed for the sake of identification, uh, open meetings such as this. I remember when I first came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I would go to closed meetings and they would be talking about the third step or the ninth step or the eleventh step, and I had no idea what they were talking about. They were only words to me. I remember one meeting, somebody mentioned procrastination, and I thought it was another illness. <laughs> and, uh, uh, but I, I could go to these type meetings and there would be someone up here, man or woman, and I could have certainly identified with anything they were saying. And I certainly am glad that we continue these meetings. I, I, uh, I am very grateful for them. Some of us, though, in the beginning, have a problem identifying. Uh, we, we just, uh, I don't know whether or not it's because we don't want to, or it's because we can't, or just what the reason is, but I know that some of us do. And I was talking with a fellow not long ago that he was a two-hatter. He worked in the field of alcoholism, and he was with these people, and he was trying to go the conventional way, like, have you ever had blackouts, or did you ever miss time from work or lose your job because of drinking and these people didn't seem to be able to identify with that so he made up a list of his own and I don't remember all of them but uh, I would like to share a few of them with you one of them was uh, has the roof of your mouth ever been sunburned <laughs> uh, that was uh, have you ever been arrested why are you in jail? Uh, another one was, did you ever brush your teeth with preparation H? I kind of flounder around a little bit when I get up here because I'm excited. I really am, and I'm confused as hell. I don't know just exactly what I'm going to say, but chances are better than good. It'll be exactly the same thing I said the last time I was privileged to do this. <laughs> really confused, really. Reminds me of a story of another alky that was a little confused. Seems uh, these two guys were out hunting. And uh, one guy's an alcoholic and the other guy was normal, whatever the hell that is. And he came on his pond, and the farmer's daughter was in swimming. And as they approached the pond, she got out, and she was nude. And, and uh, she started walking toward him. So naturally, they continued on their course. And uh, uh, the closer they got, the better she looked. And uh, they got alongside uh, 
each other, and, and the normal guy walks over and uh, kind of whispers in her ear. He says, uh, are you game? And she said, yeah. And the alcoholic shot her. I just thought I'd let you know where I was coming from so you wouldn't expect much. <laughs> well, I was asked to come here to, to share with you uh, my life before I drank, what happened while I was drinking, and what my life has become since I've been a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And within the two short hours that's been allotted me, uh, I'm going to attempt to do that. Uh, I was born, like most of us, and uh, I was born in the state of Virginia. As soon as I was big enough to see where I was, I got the hell out of there. <laughs> My hometown is Fredericksburg, and I was actually born six miles south of Fredericksburg in an old fork in the road. It was at that time named Port Royal Fork. Uh, they've since found it necessary to change the name of that little location. It's now known as New Post. And that ought to excite the hell out of everybody. Uh, I'm the third of five children, three boys and a, and a girl. And my mom and dad, and we lived, just seven of us, lived in a four-room house, and we were very poor. Uh, but we didn't know that. Uh, everybody was poor, and and that's the way it was. And and uh, you know, for many many years that I was sober, I tried to. For some years I was sober, I tried to find out and to try to explain to people in mixed company anyway uh, how poor I thought we were. And I never could come up with anything. And I was reading a magazine not long ago, and this guy was describing his life and his childhood, and he said it was it was so poor around his house that even the rainbow showed up in black and white. <laughs> And I can identify with that. I can identify with that. And, and uh, we were there, and, and I don't remember the man, but I remember the day. My dad, he had been working, and he had uh, gotten a job. He was a steam shovel operator, and he had gotten a job with the Bethlehem Steel Company in Sparrow Point, Maryland. And he was going to go to work, and it was just, just everybody was ecstatic around the house. So he was going to go to work and start earning money. like, And, and uh, we were going to start doing things that other people had been doing all along, like eating and wearing shoes. And uh, we started putting his belongings in the car, and we got it all filled in, and, and he got in the car, and he went on, and on, and on, and on, and, and uh, they found him 28 years later. Uh, through the efforts and a lot of expense, I know of my older brother, but he wanted to find out what happened to his dad, and what happened, he had relocated in Delaware, and he had raised a completely new family, all girls, as I understand it. We didn't ever know about one another, and to this day, I'm, I don't know that we do now. If, we, I, if so, I'm not aware of it. And uh, he died of active alcoholism in 1963. But meanwhile, back at the ranch, uh, things got a lot worse. And uh, we became, meaning my brothers and my sister, my mom and myself, became a ward of the state of Virginia, which meant that we went on the relief thing. 
And the powers there that were at the time decided that my mom probably wasn't able to take care of all five of us. So they took the two older boys and they put them in foster homes down near Richmond. And I automatically became the man of the house and I was eight years old. Now, from age eight until age 17, when I first had my drink, uh, the only adjective that I know to describe those nine years were absolutely devastating. Uh, I'm sure that worse things have happened to other people, and, but I didn't handle them very well. And I know that there were mental and emotional scars, psychic things happened to me in those years that I know will overcome. I certainly don't want to give anybody the impression here this morning that I'm sickly because that's not true. But I can tell you that my old ideas that we referred to in the big book that said we hold on to were probably formulated in my mind by the time I was 12 or earlier, and everything was negative. Now, a little about my life. Uh, I went to school for a little while. Uh, most people talk about their education. I talk about the lack of it. <laughs> and uh, it was this huge country building, schoolhouse, and they had two teachers. They had a petition in the center of it, and they had the first four grades in one end of the building and the fifth, sixth, and seventh grade in the other end. We had two teachers, Mrs. Roberts and Mrs. Tucker, and I know they're both in heaven. I know they are. Uh, I got into first grade, I passed fine, no problem. Second grade, third grade, no problem at all, none. I got into fourth grade, and I'd heard this fourth grade work for four years, and I couldn't pass. I just could not pass over the fourth grade. I don't know whether or not it was my problem with the boys in the other end of the building being bigger than myself, or that I thought the work was too heavy for me over there, but for some reason I could not pass over the fourth grade. And I stayed in that thing much longer than I'm going to tell you. <laughs> Uh, I'll give you a hint. I started to date the teacher. <laughs> I finally passed out of this thing, and it was a summer uh, vacation, and my Uncle Lewis, my all-time favorite uncle, he was my father image, I'm sure, and uh, he came to me one day, and he mentioned to me that I should continue on my schooling, that I should just go on school when school opened again, and during the summer months, uh, the vacation, I started to think about this thing, and I, I started to calculate all these things. And as dumb as I was, by my own calculation, by the time I got over to the other end of that building, I'd have been 35. <laughs> and I decided then and there that I was not going to spend the rest of my life in school, so I didn't go anymore. So that was the end of my formal education. And I went around the countryside, and I cut an awful lot of crest salad. I don't know if anybody knows anything about that or not, but it was watercress or dry land crust or whatever it was. And I cut it by the bag full and I'd walk around through the community and I'd try to get a quarter for it. Uh, I'd take whatever they gave me. But my thing was a quarter. And what I was doing, I was trying to make enough, some money to supplement the monies that my mom got. So basically, that is the first 17 years of my life. Uh, so now we know what we're dealing with. Um... <laughs> uh, there are really only three significant things that I can get out of that, uh, the first 17 years. One was I was dumb as hell. Uh, the other thing was that I had aimed to starve to death. And the third thing was I sucked my thumb until I was 13. Just some right here. I loved to suck my thumb. Loved it. I would suck my thumb and play with my lobe of my ear. If it was cool. And then, uh, if this lobe got warm, I'd play with this lobe. And if both lobes got warm, if you stand around, I'd play with your lobe.
I just love to suck my thumb. I really did. I, I felt better. I felt more secure with my thumb. I didn't know that word then, but I know it now. That's what it was. It was a matter of security. You know, a psychiatrist today, he can get about six months out of that. You know, speaking of psychiatrists, and I'm certainly not knocking anything, but I, I read uh, not long ago, and I, they do some fine work, but I read not long ago that a lot of those guys are beginning to treat our alcoholism as if it were a Librium deficiency. <laughs> I'm not really sure of that. I'm not... Uh, um, I was in Fredericksburg, my hometown, one day at 817, and I walked in the park, and one of my buddies was there on the bench, and we congregated in this park, but it was a weekday, and he was by himself. And he informed me that he had sent an older man over to the ABC store, a guy, the guy must have been at least 23, uh, to get a bottle of wine. Didn't mean a thing to me. Nothing. I knew absolutely... The only thing I knew about alcohol at the time, my Uncle Lewis, my favorite uncle, made homebrew. And I knew it was brown, and I knew they put it in bottles, and I knew it exploded in the middle of the night. <laughs> and that's all I knew about it. And this old man brought this bottle of wine back and handed it to my buddy, and he took the top off it and took a drink, and he handed it to me, and I took a drink, and everything changed. Everything about my life changed. The first thing that alcohol did for me, it started to relieve the pain that I had been in all these years, not knowing that. And I wasn't aware of that at the time, but I know now that the first thing it did for me, it started to relieve the pain. And each and every time thereafter that I took a drink, depending on the size of it, it relieved some of the pain. And that's why I drank the way I did. I believe that. Uh, I no longer felt like I was standing in somebody else's place or that I was breathing somebody else's air, that I was just a non-entity. I felt like I was somebody. And I decided then, not knowingly, that I was going to continue this because I had found what I needed. And I, I know now that I was at least psychologically addicted to alcohol from my very first drink. I don't know when I became an alcoholic. I don't really don't give a damn. But I know that I had a psychological dependency on it from the very first time it touched my brain. I left that park bench and, and I drank something each and every day thereafter for the next 20 years. Each and every day that it was humanly possible to get it, I drank it. And I, I never hid it, only when I thought I'd have to share it with you. But I never hid it. And I drank and consumed alcohol to sustain me in one area of my being on a daily basis, exactly the same way that I ate food to sustain me in another area of my being on a daily basis, and it was equally as important to me. I thought it was my right, and it was nobody's business. And I drank all the time. Of course, I wasn't drunk all the time, but I drank each and every day. And I never, ever once entertained the thought of not drinking. I could not compute that. It was just too much for me to think. Uh, I think there's some things we just kick out of this computer. Uh, I kind of equate it to everybody knows they're going to die but nobody believes it you know and I just couldn't compute that and I went through the next 20 years and I did almost exactly the thing that any other guy would do that didn't drink my life was not really that much unlike other men only when it came to the drug alcohol I was strangely insane and I didn't know that uh, I was married when I was 21 fine human being a very fine human being She's my children's mother. Uh, I went into service when I was 23. Career was a mess. And I didn't want to go there. Uh, they put me in basic training down in Camp Pickett, Virginia. I'm not going to tell you the war stories because I don't have any. 
Uh, and uh, there were a thousand men in the basic training cycle, and everybody was going to Korea, and they knew that. I knew I was going there. And, and eight, 987 of those guys on graduation day got orders cut to go to the West Coast, and they put 13 of us in a corner over here. And they said, you guys are going to Austria. I never heard of it. <laughs> and, and I noticed this guy next to me, I said, hey, where's Austria? He said, it's nowhere near Korea. I said, I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready right now. And he said something about a 10-day delay en route. I said, I don't want that. I know how these people operate. I want to go right now, right now. But they wouldn't allow that. And I went home. I moved to Washington, D.C. In, in July 1950. I met Mary and my first wife in my hometown in Fredericksburg. And I did most of my drinking in the metropolitan Washington area. So we got out of basic, and I came back to Washington, and 10 days later, I went to Camp Kilmer, and then we shipped out from New York, and we went to, we landed in Italy, Livorno, Italy. Speaking of Italy, uh, I read a lot, but nothing heavy. <laughs> I read a lot, and, and uh, I was reading the other day uh, these question things, uh, and one of the questions was, uh, do you know why the new Italian Navy has glass-bottom boats? And the answer is, the reason that the new Italian Navy has glass-bottom boats is so they can see the old Italian Navy. I thought for a minute you were going to sleep on me. <laughs> they put us on a train, they shipped us up into Austria, and I spent 19 months there. And it was a holiday, a real holiday. And I would like to take this opportunity at this time to thank you if you went to Korea. <laughs> I hadn't been there very long, and I got some stripes. As a matter of fact, I became a non-commissioned officer. And the way I got these stripes, this guy was running through this corridor in this hotel that we were billeted in, and he was handing people things. And he ran past me, and he handed me something, and it turned out to be stripes. <laughs> and I waited a couple days to find out what the other guys did with theirs, and they sewed theirs on, so I sewed mine on. That's about the way that happened. Just about the way it happened. They needed some NCOs, and they just made me one. And, and uh, the last year I was there, I don't believe some of this stuff myself, but it's true. Uh, <laughs> The last year I was there, uh, I had a special privilege pass, which meant that I could go anywhere in the Austrian command anytime I wanted to go without any questions. I had a jeep and an ambulance, uh, a driver at my disposal 24 hours a day, and I could come and go when I chose. And it was a real holiday. But I didn't have any money. <laughs> the money was tough. And, and uh, I don't tell this story to be offensive or to insult anybody. Please keep an open mind. It's an important part of my story. Uh, this thing went on and, and I was in the medics and, and uh, if you contacted this social disease uh, you were subjected to a one stripe bus and a lot of those guys were really socializing and they would come to me <laughs> and they would ask me to help them out and I would say man I couldn't do that they would shoot me 
you know, the, the, the American penicillin and the, the European penicillin were totally different, and nobody wanted to lose a stripe, and they were so meticulous about the penicillin prescriptions and the narcotic prescription, everything was to the letter with that. And they would come to me and ask me, I said, I couldn't do that. I said, they would shoot me. I know they would shoot me. And I was pulling CQ one night, and this master sergeant walked in, and his head all down. He was really sad, and he looked like a zebra. And uh, he approached me, and before he said anything, I said, I can't help you. I can't help you. I said, I know they would shoot me. And the next day, the only reason I was pulling CQ is because I was broke, because I would have been in town. So the next day, I borrowed some money and went to town. And on the way back, I'm all drunk up, and I got to think about this thing. Now, I'm drunk now, and I'm thinking to myself, shoot who? So, the very next day, I looked this guy up. He wasn't hard to find. And I went into business for the first time in my life with Uncle Sam's penicillin. And things either got so good or so bad, how you want to look at it, uh, I took on two partners. And we made a lot of money. We made a lot of money. We didn't send any of it home. We drank it up. If there was so much money there, if we had a pot and we couldn't drink up, we'd have a party. We'd have a party and they would drink it up. So the purpose of all this insanity was that uh, we needed to drink, the, I needed to drink the way I needed to drink at the time when I was 24. Now, I was inducted in the United States Army 30 years ago yesterday. And this took place 29 years ago. And I think about this a lot. You know, had they caught me for some of the things I did, I would be about this time processing a Lewisburg at some of those other places. But I never once thought that I was doing anything wrong. My straight line of thinking was toward that alcohol and nothing else. I never really ever thought that I was breaking anybody's rules or laws. It never dawned on me. I came home and I was honorably discharged, which meant that I hadn't gotten caught. And uh, I came home, and I came back to Washington, D.C., and my wife, or my children's mother now, uh, was working. She was a bookbinder. She was working for McArdle, 22nd and M, and we lived in the Washington area, as I said earlier. And she was doing fine, and they made good money, and, and uh, she was kind of forcing me into employment. And I thought that she was just a little nudgy, you know. Uh, I was only 25. And uh, she wanted me to go to work, and I had never done anything in my life that, that amounted to anything. The only things that I'd ever done to, that lasted any time, once I was a short-order cook in my hometown in a diner, along with a dishwasher job, and I had driven a pie truck for a time. And those were the only things that I'd ever done. I wasn't trained for anything. But it really didn't bother me. It did not bother me. I just flowed with the flow, and it really was all right the way it was. It didn't bother me one way or the other. But she was kind of nudging me into this employment thing, and... And I figured by this time that I should be doing something. So I was in southeast Washington one day on Independence Avenue, and they were building an apartment house. And I walked past it, and there was a huge sand pile in front of it. And I went inside, and I asked for the superintendent, and I found him, and I, I asked him, he said, yeah, I'll give you a job. So we walked back up front, and he said, this is a sand pile. Well, I already knew that. <laughs> and uh, he went over, and he got a, got a mortar box and a chopping hose. And he brought it back over, and he pulled it in front of the sand. He said, now, you put so much sand in this box, and so much mortar, and so much cement, and so much lime, and you work, make it up to a certain consistency. And after you get all that done, he said, you see that guy over there? He said, now, you take it over to him, and he'll do all the work. (laughs) 
Well, I know everyone understood that, but anyway, that's what he told me. So that's what I did, and I chopped an awful lot of mortar in the three years that I chopped mortar. An awful lot of mortar. It, it was the first character to make money out of it and laid it on the kitchen table, and it was more money than I'd ever thought I'd ever be able to earn in my lifetime. In my lifetime. And you know, something, some kind of a psychic quirk happened to me as far as greed is concerned. That night, when I saw all that money, very akin to this obsession to drink more alcohol that happened to me in that park in Fredericksburg years earlier. And I was just obsessed with these material things then. Consciously, they had never been a problem to me. I had never really thought of them. In any way, I was all right exactly the way things were. And I started to think right away how I was going to keep these people's money, hands out of my money. And it took me a month to find out how you do that is you go into business for yourself, legitimately. And that's what I did. Uh, I formed my own company. By 1960, I had three trucks on the road. I had a minimum of eight people working for me and things that arrived for me as far as economics in my life was concerned. In 1960 and 61, the cash flow in my outfit was so great I couldn't keep up with it. Now, I certainly don't mean this room full of money, but I know that had I continued on, I could have retired at least by the time I was 45. I'm sure of that. And things were just fine on the outside, just fine. But one of the reasons they were fine was I worked seven days a week however many hours it took because I just had discreet. I had time for nobody, nobody. And I just worked all the time. I just absolutely had to get all these things together. And I don't understand that yet. And it really doesn't make any difference, I guess. I know I was down in Clinton. This was my thinking one day. And I saw this house being built. And I went over and talked to the guy about it. And the next afternoon, I went back and I bought it with a mortgage. Two-car garage, a car in each garage, a nice barbecue pit in the backyard. Everything was fine. Everything was fine. I had my own yard for my trucks and my equipment and things like that and my office there and everything. I had my secretary. Everything was fine. The lot next door was sold to me and this guy put a barbecue pit in his backyard that was bigger than mine. I never did like this guy anyway. I didn't know his name. But I didn't like him. He damn near worked me to death to tell you the truth. Uh, <laughs> He must have been a GS-96 or something. He went to work all pretty all the time, and, and I just hated him. And his thinking was somewhere along the lines of mine, I'm sure, because i tell you what happened, really. I'm kind of embarrassed to go into this, keeping up with the Jones bit, but uh, we got into what I now refer to as this barbecue pit war. <laughs> and by the time this barbecue pit war was over, my barbecue pit was damn near as big as my house. And you know, I had absolutely no idea that I didn't have to live that way. No idea. I didn't know that it was all right I didn't have any barbecue pit at all. I really didn't. I didn't know that, that anything was all right. I just knew that I had to do what I thought other people were doing, and this is what I thought other people were doing. And I guess the people that I was looking at, that's what they were doing. And there were some of them. And I was one of them. Alcoholism is an illness, and it's progressive. It's always down. Always down. In case anybody hadn't told you when you're drinking. And I was no exception. Lost my business first. They told me I was going to lose out, all the contractors that I was working for. And I knew the reason I was going to lose out because I was drinking too much, but I never thought of not drinking. It was just too horrendous for me. I went in and filed bankruptcy for my business, and, and I had a good lawyer. And we were able to steal enough money I could keep my house. 
and, and uh, I lived in that, and I went back to work as a tile setter. Now, I could have lived in that house to this day on a tile setter's wages because they do pretty good. I didn't have to live in more large sums of money, and everything was fine. And, and I could have lived there if I could, but I couldn't maintain this setting tile. And the day came that I was no longer physically or mentally able to give a man a day's work as a mechanic. So my whole life, as far as work is concerned, had taken a complete circle, made a complete circle, and I wound up back in the mortar box from where I started. Now, my wife lived with me under these conditions. We were living in a, a $10 a week sleeping room at 12th and Pennsylvania Avenue Southeast in Washington, D.C. Uh, our son was nine years old. The bathroom was in the hallway. We shared the same bed, and we were eventually evicted from that. Now, why my wife lived with me under these conditions, I have no idea. Maybe she was just waiting for this miracle to take place, that this would go away. That this would go away, because she didn't drink. She was a teetotaler. And she got progressively sicker as I got sicker, and I know that now. Oh, uh, and, and this is where we were. And we walked back on the porch one day to go back upstairs, and the landlady locked the door and put all our belongings on the porch as they were, and she wouldn't even allow us to go upstairs and see whether or not we'd, she'd overlooked anything. Uh, and this is just geographics. It, it, this could have happened in Syracuse or Atlanta or Savannah. It just this is where it happened to me. So, uh, geographics are not important, but we walked back down on 12th and Pennsylvania Avenue, the corner there, southeast, and she took the boy by the hand and started to walk down toward the Navy Yard. And I turned around and I started walking up toward the Capitol Building on Pennsylvania Avenue, and not a word was said. And we had been married at the time 13 years. And it was two years before I saw either of these people again. I left them, and I walked straight past the Capitol Building. I walked down to 12th New York Avenue by the bus station, and I sat down on one of those park benches that's still there, and I felt I was where I belonged. I'd, par I'd come up to a red light there years earlier in a new Buick that had less than a 1,000 miles on it and looked at those guys sitting in that park on that bench and knew very well that someday I would be there. And I knew that I was absolutely powerless to do anything about it. So when I got there, I had been there mentally for a long time. And for the next two years, the only thing I owned two of the two years that I was on Skid Row physically was overcoats. Uh, every time I saw an overcoat that wasn't wrapped around somebody, I'd put it on. Because <laughs> I knew it was going to get cold or wet. Maybe I'd be able to hock it or sell it. And this is the way I lived. And I would go anywhere or do anything that anybody else would do or that I had to do in order to get another drink of wine. And you could fill that in. Uh, whatever I had to do to, to sustain me. I got to the place where Wild Eyes Rose was my favorite. V.O. had been for years. Then I got to the place where it was too strong, and my Wild Eyes was my thing. And I would like to say something about Wild Eyes at this time. It's the only wine that I know in captivity that has never seen a grape. <laughs> anyway. oh. Oh. And I would just walk around through the community, and I would bum quarters. That was my thing. I needed a quarter. And the last ten months that I drank, three other winos and I went, were, went over on the old Kenilworth Avenue dump, uh, and we built a shack there, and that's where I lived or slept the last ten months that I drank. Now, how this came about, I was on Bladensburg Road one morning in front of the Pinkett's Liquor Store, and I needed another quarter. And I saw this silhouetted person, and I walked over to it and asked it for a quarter, and it backed away far enough and said, man, what the hell is wrong with you? And he was far enough away, and I could see him. He had on two overcoats, too. And he took me around in the back of the building, and he took his wine out and gave me a drink of it. We didn't talk. And there were three of them there when I arrived, and the other two came back later. And we got together, and we walked around the rest of that day. And that afternoon, 
we walked back in Comar Manor, back at the uh, the edge of the dump, and they were filling it in at the time. It's since become a real nice recreational area. And uh, a piece of plywood fell off of one of the trucks that was being dumped, and one of the guys mentioned that we ought to go over there and build ourselves a shack, and maybe they'll leave us alone. Me and the town cops and Peace Cross and Comar Manor and Cottage City, they wouldn't lock us up, they'd just keep us walking. You know, you walk for a couple of weeks and it's tiresome as hell, so... Uh, as soon as they stopped working that afternoon, we went over and we put up this makeshift shack well enough that we slept in it that night. And that's where I slept the last ten months that I drank. And being in construction, I kept adding on to this shack. You know. Uh, I know you aren't familiar with the area, but about a quarter of a mile down toward the marina, they had two other, some other guys had two smaller shacks. And I was already on the biggest dump in the area, and I had to just make my shack better than everybody else. You know, I Still thinking alcoholic. And I'd, I'd go there and I'd steal my non-perishables, my sardines, my Vienna sausage, and I had the quarter of this shack that I could go and lie down in, and nobody could bother me. And it was the first time in months that I really legitimately had a place to go. It was my own. And I'd get all wind up, and I'd go back, and I'd lay back there, and I would just be in this no no land, and I'd say to myself, Ray, you know you're really not doing too bad. <laughs> and and, and uh, the months prior to that, I really wasn't, if you compared them. If you... If you uh, I really wanted to, though. I, someday I was looking forward to, really, to put me a brick patio on the side of that shack. <laughs> I really wanted to do that and get me an orange crate and sit out there with my wild eyes and say to hell with it. Just, just let the rest of the world go by. I didn't last that long. On December the 14th, 1966, I was put in jail down in La Plata. Uh, I was with a guy that escaped from the Clifford T. Perkins criminally insane outfit over near Jessup's. Uh, I didn't know he had escaped. Uh, 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 we had, we were riding in a real nice car. Uh, yeah, that's right. That's right. And in the process of the robbery, a gun showed up. I didn't know any of these three things, either. but it would have made any difference. I'd have been with him anyway. And we were down below the plate, down there at Pope's Creek, and we were robbing a man's place down there. And they frowned on that in Charles County. <laughs> and and uh, they put us in jail in the play of that night, and that was what I now know could be the day that I don't have to drink anymore. Doesn't have to be my last drink, but I now know that it can be. Uh, I was in jail in the play of about five or six days, I don't know, and I went into what I now know is delayed DTs, and I almost died. I almost died. They had two men cages and they took the other guy for his protection, and they just left me in there uh, to do my thing, and I just damn near died. Uh, I was at a meeting Monday night, chair meeting, in a church next door to the jail, and where the leader's chair is, I can see the window of the jail cell that I was in. Uh, I stayed there 45 days, and, and Christmas and New Year's of 66 and 67, and on June, um, January 30th, 1967, I was tried and convicted of grand larceny. I was sentenced to two years of Merlin House Correction. The judge down there, J. Dudley Diggs, he just retired, the first of the year, uh, he gave me the two years, and he looked down at me, and uh, he said, Mr. Bennett, he said, I believe you're worth saving. And of course, I agreed with him. <laughs> and uh, he suspended the two-year prison sentence, and he court-ordered me for six months to Crownsville. Now, every place has a Crownsville. I don't know where the one is for Ocean City, but every place has a Crownsville uh, that I've ever been. And they transported me the afternoon of the morning of January 30th, 1967, 
the cottage 15 at Cran- you know the people talk to me and, but this guy Ray Rawl especially seemed like he picked me out for some reason and these guys would hold hands and talk about loving each other and I really didn't understand that I really and truly did not understand that because I had never in my life been exposed to anybody like that man type wise and, and, and I just didn't understand now listen my thinking has changed about everything in my life and you do what you want to do you know I mean and I want to do what I want to do but I just was not up to that I really wasn't and, and uh, I remember one night after the meeting was over he got on his real spiritual high now I understand that now and he runs over to me after the meeting he looks me in his face he said Ray I love you and I said and don't you touch me <laughs> well he did love me I know he did and, and I can tell you today I love him and many, many, many men, and a lot of them in this room. And I thank God that I'm able to say that publicly. So if you're new to Alcoholics Anonymous, and people act like they love you, men and women, they do. They act that way because they do. Uh, that's just the way it is. I was released from Crown's Girl June 6, 1967. I stayed there four and a half months. And I went home. My wife had an uh, apartment at Eastover. She was doing fine. She'd gone back to work. She didn't need me around. And uh, I went in her apartment that afternoon, and the boy was doing fine. He was 12 years old now. He had never seen me sober in his lifetime. And we sat and talked. And I'm without a drink now six months, and I don't know what to do. I went home with the idea that I was going to take charge again. You know. And she had other plans. Like, you could sleep on the couch until you're financially able to move on. And I didn't understand that. I still don't. Uh, and I just got to the place where I was just in a state of just total despair again, and I'm without a drink six months now. But that's all. See, I hadn't had anything done to this personality that is absolutely vital to change if we're going to maintain sobriety. And I didn't know that. All that had happened to me in the first six months that I wasn't drinking was simply that I wasn't drinking, that I had been physically removed from the drug alcohol. And that's all. And things got so bad, I called downtown, never expecting to ever go to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, ever. It did 10 hours that I had been out. Everything about my thinking had changed. And I remember somebody in Crownsville suggested that I attend a meeting the night of the day that I was released. Called downtown, and they told me that the meeting was at the St. Bombers Group. And I went there. I started to walk, and I hitchhiked. I got a ride, and I made my first outside AA meeting, June 6, 1967, at the St. Bombers Group in Oxnill, Maryland. I walked in there, and this was the picture. I was 38 years old. If you're having any trouble with that, I said I was over 15 years, and 38, that's 53. Uh, uh, I walked in there and I was 38 years old I was wearing state clothes that they said that fit me and I knew they were lying uh, I had on this real big pair of boots that were, two people could have gotten in I needed a haircut legitimately I didn't have a dime I didn't have a friend and I really didn't have a place to go no place and I was 38 and only had nine teeth. And I love peanuts. <laughs> now the tragedy of the whole thing was that none of them were over the other.
Now, can you imagine watching me eat and clean out like this? When I left that meeting that night, they told me to come back. And uh, first time in a long time, we hear this a lot in A, but I know it's the truth that anybody had asked me to come back anywhere. I was like most other people who asked me to get out. And I kept going back. I just kept going back. I went each and every night for at least two years because I wouldn't very much demand anywhere else. <laughs> so I just kept going. And I did the things that people asked me to do or told me to do, really. Uh, the first thing I did, I got a home group, the Congress Heights group. They were there one night, and they knew the new treasurer, and this guy looked over me and said he can count. And I was a treasurer. I was elected, democratically. Uh, that's what they told me later. I got a sponsor. Uh, first time I saw my sponsor, I knew I wanted to be like him. He'd been sober 13 years at the time. His name is Ed Thompson, and he walked with such assuredness that it was almost obscene. Really. Everything he did, he was absolutely sure of himself. And I want to be that way. And the first time I heard him talk, I knew that he'd be able to help me because of a part of his story. And I, I give me permission to tell this part of his story. He worked for the telephone company. And he had had a good job there uh, at one time in, in management of some kind or sales or something. And he'd really been a white-collar man. And then he decided he didn't want to do that. He went back to the line and his alcoholism progressed. And he got to the place in the telephone company that allowed him to come to the telephone building downtown and they built a box for him. It said, now you come in here and you walk in this door and you sit on the box and don't touch nothing. You don't have to do no work, just sit on the box and don't touch nothing. Just show up every morning, sit on the box. And he got so bad, this alcoholism is progressive and it's always down, he got so bad off that he would call up and tell him he was too sick to come sit on the box. <laughs> I knew that was my man. I knew that was my man. I kept going to meetings. I kept going. He took me all over the area to talk, and I did other things. They asked me to lead meetings, and they asked me to talk like this. Most of them were sorry later. And, and uh, just anything they asked me to do, the first time in my life, I think I started to follow directions. My wife and I, or my children's mother, were having a hard time. And we tried everything known to man or anybody else to keep our marriage together and to keep our family intact, but it just didn't work. We met an A baby. I have an A baby. He's 13 years old and he thinks I'm the greatest thing around. And I said, that's right. That's <laughs> right. Yeah. After four years, we decided that probably it would be better that we lived apart. And we left, and I have always maintained my responsibility, as I should, toward my children. My oldest boy is 25. He's doing fine. He's a plumber. I tried to get him to come in with me as a, to be a tall man or, or I'm in general remodeling now and I have been for about 13 years. He didn't want to, he wanted to be a plumber. And I kept trying to explain to him that really what a plumber is is a tile setter with his brains knocked out. <laughs> but he enjoys his work. Enjoys his work. He's doing fine. Uh, I maintain a regular, constant relationship with my children. I talk to them every day almost, both of them. And I have the years that we've been apart. 
and uh, uh, I lived alone for eight years. I lived directly across the street from Andrews Air Force Base at uh, Memco there for eight years in my own apartment. I never thought I'd ever remarry, but I did two years ago in January. Linda and I, she, I met her down in Waldorf, and uh, uh, she had a nice home. <laughs> I'm going to tell this. Uh, I married her for her money, and, and uh, she married me for my body, and we were both disappointed. kept coming to AA, and things about my life started to change. They really started to change. The things that I've learned about myself now is that really the most important thing, one of the most important things in my life today is that there really aren't any big deals. That does not mean that I've lost all my illusions or that I don't get angry or I don't become elated. It just means that as far as my selfishness and my self-centeredness is concerned, I'm a little bit removed from that because all of my other life was a big deal. And the reason for that was that I took myself too seriously. I was always taking myself too seriously. So now every time I begin to do that, and I do, I begin to laugh aloud and say, Ray, you're taking yourself too seriously. And I go on to other things. Um, today I can tell you that I have more of everything than I need. Much more. Uh, more top coats. <laughs> Uh, more vehicles, more beds, uh, more money. I said that the other night and meeting the guy in the back said, you can give me some of that. Uh, I don't mean it that way. Well, I, I, can, I like to qualify that by saying that I know I know we'll have everything I want, but I certainly have much more of everything today than I need, and I'm grateful for that attitude. And I think most of us do after a while. It's like about a year. Uh, I approve of the way I live today. In my other life, I could never have said that. Uh, and that simply means to me that every night I go to bed, I do this every night. I think about what I've done today to myself or for myself or to myself and other people and always give myself a check mark. I may have done a little better one day from the next, but I always pass. I always pass. Which means to me really that I approve of the way I treat myself and other people. And I could never have said that before, ever. If you're new, keep coming back. Um, that's what they told me. Come back, come back. I thought that was the simplest damn thing I'd ever heard. I tell you the truth, I did not understand that. But I can tell you, keep coming. Um, some people say that you should go to a meeting every day for 90 days, 60 days, 108 and a half days. I really don't know how many meetings you should attend. I would like to suggest to you that you attend each and every night until you want to go. Go until you want to go. Each and every night. Just go until you want to go. And it happens. It happened to me and it happens to thousands and thousands of people. And I think the, the time will come that that will happen and you'll be on your way to the bathroom in the morning and before you get there you'll think to yourself, now which meeting am I going to attend tonight? It happens. But we had to persist in this. Because we're changing completely. And that's the thing we fight the most, is change. Uh, and I think by the time we get to that place, 
we're somewhere near the broad highway with our psychic that we need to be on in order to maintain a comfortable sobriety. I want to, this time, thank the committee uh, for asking me to come. Uh, I want to share this with you. When I was first asked to come here, they wanted me in another slot. And uh, they called me about two weeks later and asked me if uh, it would be all right that they changed me into a Sunday morning. And I said, I'd be just privileged to be there at any time. And, but I said, well, I would really like to know the reason. And they told me that uh, the reason that they had changed me to Sunday morning, that they had looked over the list of speakers, and I was the most spiritual of the bunch. Sometime tonight, before you go to sleep, please pray for these speakers. <laughs> it's certainly been a privilege, really. I've enjoyed this. I've been honored, really. I want to thank each of you for being here to share your experience and your strength and your hope with me, and God bless you.